Good evening and welcome to Ideas. I'm Paul Kennedy and this is part four of David Cayley's series on The Corruption of Christianity with Ivan Illich. The idea of fit, of appropriateness, of a thing which is good, just simply good, no matter what value it has. This idea has been washed out in post-1950 ordinary thinking. Cultures, Ivan Illich says, were once defined by their sense of how things fit together. The experienced world was a cosmos, a Greek word for what the French call vis-à-vis, the way things line up in relation to each other. Heaven and earth, sea and shore, woman and man. Each giving presence and definition to the other. Cosmos was the order of relationships in which things had been placed, and people's actions were tailored to this order. What was good was what fit. This sense of fit, Illich claims, has now vanished from contemporary culture. We no longer live in a cosmos, a proportioned world in which each thing defines and complements its opposite. How this world was lost and how this loss can be understood as a perversion of Christianity are Illich's themes tonight. Part 4 of The Corruption of Christianity by David Cayley. During the first three broadcasts in this series, Ivan Illich has argued the hypothesis that much of what is unique and unprecedented in modern Western society can best be understood as a corruption of Christianity a hypothesis he sums up in the formula, the corruption of the best is the worst. Many 20th century social theorists have written about the formative influence of Christian thinking on contemporary institutions, but they have generally seen these institutions as a practical realization of Christian spiritual ideals. Illich, as his carefully chosen word corruption suggests, takes a radically different view. He understands the modern world to be involved in a betrayal of its Christian antecedents. He calls the modern attempt to remake the world a blasphemy, another carefully chosen word which means a sin against faith. Through faith, he has written, what I see and feel I know to be creation. What I see as real I know exists only by participation in the divine goodness. But the world in which I find myself, he goes on, is mostly an artificial world, a manufactured construct ever further removed from creation, a world in the hands of experts who presume through a kind of transcendent pride to manage it. Illich approaches this reality as an historian who believes that only through careful study of the past can we cultivate a sense of how strangely out of tune our contemporary society is. Only in the mirror of the past, he says, does it become possible to recognize the radical otherness of modern assumptions. He begins his reflections tonight 
by looking back to the genesis of one of those assumptions, the idea that the world lies in human hands, open to unlimited manipulation. He finds its origin in an idea that deeply colored the Christian sensibility of the Middle Ages, the idea of contingency. This conception, he says, expressed both the fullest flowering of the Christian sense of the cosmos and the seeds of the eventual shattering of this cosmos. He opens with a definition, occasionally quoting from an article on the Christian concept of contingency by German historian of philosophy Hans Blumenberg, which Illich sometimes consulted as he spoke. Contingency refers to a state of living in a world which doesn't bear in itself the reason for its own existence, but gets it from an absolutely necessary, personal, ever-creating God. That things get their existence, their presence in the world from an act of the will of the Creator. We are both, in our essence, human beings, but it is a personal act of God's will to bring you and also that little cat, that kitten there, into existence and keep it in existence. And in front of this act of God's goodness, I can do nothing else but bow in deep respect. The idea that the world's existence is contingent on the will of God has deep biblical roots and is shared by other monotheistic religions like Judaism and Islam. But it receives a unique accent during the Christian Middle Ages, and above all in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. Central to this Christian version of the idea, and central also to Illich's own philosophy, is the notion of existence as a personal gift. At this moment, the world's very existence assumes the nature of something gratuitous. The world which is around me, the cat over there, and the roses, the four red roses which bloomed during the night, are a gift, something which is a grace. This moment of our being together, which I immensely enjoy, is not predetermined by some karma, isn't a chance, isn't logical necessary, is a pure gift. It's a gift from that creator who keeps beings in existence. And therefore we can also understand our own activity of freely sitting here together as a gift to each other in an entirely new way. The novelty and originality of this idea, Illich says, continuing to quote Blumenberg, can be seen by comparing it to classical views of how the world is brought into existence. The coming into existence of the antique cosmos, the cosmos of Aristotle, the cosmos of Plato, was in no way dependent on the act of someone's will, neither in its genesis, in its coming about, in its birth, nor in its continuation. The cosmos was but the fullness of expression of what was identically fit for existence. If something came into existence, came into being, came into existence. You couldn't think of the contingent. However, since Augustine, things have changed. Augustine answered the question, why God created the world with that incredible 
Kriya Vult. Because it pleased him. Because he willed it. He wanted it. In Spanish I would say, Porque tenía ganas. I know that in America you don't have ganas. It's something which is a will which comes from pretty deep in the stomach of God. The world's existence is the result, therefore, at every moment and in the way it is of a sovereign act. The idea that the world at every moment depends on God's will is, for Illich, a glorious expression of the surprising, unfathomable generosity of existence. But contingency, he says, is also a fragile and unstable doctrine because it hangs existence by a single thread. Only break the thread and the world tumbles from the hands of God into the hands of man. God's sovereignty becomes the model for human dominion. Such a break was made thinkable, Illich says, by a change in the way later medieval thinkers, like Duns Scotus and William of Ockham, interpreted this doctrine. To put it as simply as possible, these philosophers, basing themselves in part on Augustine's quia voluit, put more and more emphasis on God's freedom, until his will came to be seen as something arbitrary. Thomas Aquinas had seen creation as something possessing a rational and intelligible structure. Duns Scotus, writing just a generation later, claimed that there can be no rational explanation for God's will whatsoever. His will is unintelligible as anything other than pure will. This teaching made God's very being contingent, and contingency and consequence began to take on the meaning that any dictionary will tell you it has today, mere chance, instance, or accident. The stage was set, Illich says, for the philosophers of the 17th century to claim that each being has within its own nature the reasons for its existence. His will became the symbol for arbitrarity and prepared the way for an understanding of the world outside of contingency, dependent on, as a contingency, the chance world, the world of chance, in which everything bears in itself the reason for its being. For a long time, 17th, 18th, even early 18th century, these were still true Christian believers who confirmed constantly that God created the world, the world as it is, and therefore placed the seed of nature into each thing, but the connection between the aliveness of nature and the constant creative act of God was cut, was broken. One of the consequences of this cut in the taut thread of contingency, Illich says, was that nature lost what had never before been in doubt, its aliveness. One thing was certain in antiquity, that nature was alive. That Natura a nascitura dicitur, that nature is a concept, an idea, an experience derived from birth-giving. That therefore, things as we are, if we say we are natural, we say we are born. And this idea is deeply affected in the 12th century by the sense of contingency. The whole of nature lies in God's hands. Nature has its aliveness through its constant support by the creative act of God. 
But with this elevation for me, glorification of classical nature, the condition was created by which once nature was taken out of the hands of God, it could also lose its most essential quality, which is aliveness. If therefore we speak about these 17th and 18th century, the rise of natural science, we are faced by the research on a nature which not only is outside of the hands of God, but has lost that basic characteristic which it had all through antiquity in our tradition of aliveness. And once you have to do with a science which studies the working of nature separated from aliveness, you can call it mechanical, or you can call it necessary, or give any name to it you want, an issue comes up which is characteristically modern. How do you explain, how do you speak about life in a nature and among natural things which are not born, but so to say, mathematically programmed, we would say today, by what remains of nature. With this denaturing of nature, Illich argues, the cosmos came apart at its seams. The microcosm ceased to mirror the macrocosm because things now contained within themselves the seeds of their nature, or as one would say today, the principles of their development. The being of things in the world was no longer determined by their mutual correspondence or fit, but by an internal law peculiar to that thing. Through the unique, overbearing power of the idea of contingency, the pattern of the world was broken. This shattering of the sense of proportion, Illich claims, produced a new world, a world unlike any that had ever been before. This novel, unprecedented character becomes clear, he says, when it is contrasted with the informing idea of all previous societies. The idea that heaven is mirrored by earth, and the earth is mirrored by heaven, that this baby I saw yesterday in a woman's arms is a cosmos, a microcosmos, and that I can look at the stars or look at this baby's makeup and look in two directions where I see something which at first sight is utterly dissymmetric and yet fitting in every point. I need a specially trained gaze to do that, which anthropologists call cultures. I rather speak of the art of seeing the cosmos, bearing it, suffering it, and enjoying it. The certainty that there is a correspondence between the beyond and the here, beyond which might be the stars, seems to be, at least for those cultural worlds of which I know something, certain. It's a background, the magma out of which at least circum-Mediterranean cultures, but as far as I can understand also Far Eastern cultures, in the Mexican, Aztec and Maya cosmos, which I know a little bit, presuppose, you can't, you can't enter there without having that assumption, 
that we were this the result of a mutually constitutive complementarity between here and there. The idea of contingency, of a world dependent on a single supreme will, threatened to unbalance this proportion cosmos. This potentially corrosive effect was quite evident, for example, to the wise men of China when the first Christian missionary reached the Chinese court at the end of the 16th century. Ignatius, founder of the Jesuits, sent one of his best men, Padre Ricci, to Macau, the only foothold available Portuguese colony already, one town, it still is. And Ricci, who had trained his memory in northern Italy, in the Po Valley, splendidly with the elaboration of his time of the Ciceronian rules of memory training, succeeded to learn something like 25,000 Chinese signs in a few years. And once he knew these, which had never happened before, but somebody coming from the outside would know these signs, so this would know Chinese, he somehow picked it up and therefore had to be admitted to the imperial court in Peking as a bonzi. Matteo Ricci. Now, barely was he speaking, teaching there, letters from all over China of the literate men streamed in to imperial court, calling to attention the fact that this was a most dangerous and poisonous man. He didn't speak about God. He knew that he shouldn't. Neither the pre-Socratic nor the post-Socratic divinities of classical times existed there, nor the votans of northern Europe. God seems not to be, or gods, a very Chinese idea. But Ritchie was talking about a master in heaven. And they all called to the attention of the emperor that if we admit a master in heaven, the perfect balance between heaven and China, heaven and earth, would be broken. China would cease to be, to be this world, the center of this world, the reason for this world, as the heaven is the reason for China. These Chinese learned literati understood that the spirit of contingency at a time of its very advanced sunset was still poisonous and upsetting for China for a metaphysical reason, because China was based on an equal balance, a perfect balance, because up and down, above and below. To upset this balance, as the Chinese literati quickly grasped, was to undo the harmonious proportions of the traditional cosmos. Things would lose their natural tuning and no longer fit together. And this was precisely what began to happen, Illich says, in 17th century Europe, a world that had formerly taken its very existence from something beyond itself, now came to exist entirely in itself, of itself, and for itself. We can think about a world of objects and of persons and of social constellations here to which nothing on the other side corresponds. It is not only a womb-less world, is a world in which 
the idea of frontier, of limit, has a meaning which I think before Newton and Leibniz was inconceivable. Because if we spoke of limit, horizon, by using the word itself, it was a frontier to something else. The ability of living in a world in which, therefore, frontier has no beyond is something profoundly new, which I would like to explore how it affects our daily dealings, which make us so different from all other cultures, worlds, languages, makes even our writing of poetry arbitrary in a way which was not available to the Renaissance. Even if some modern text theoreticians try to colonize the Renaissance past with our contemporary ideas of analogy. A world with no beyond, Illich argues, is also deprived of its sense of a uniquely proportioned here, that distinctive way in which a given people in a given place embody their sense of what is good. When it becomes possible to conceive of a frontier with no beyond, he says, the feeling that things can be good in themselves breaks down. The old language of good gives way to a new language of values. And this, for Illich, represents the decisive moment in the detuning and disproportioning of the world. The good is something for which people have a culturally shaped sense, as real as smell or touch, a sense for what, in a given context, fits. Values lack this distinct color, shape, and feel. They are, by definition, relative and interchangeable. Like commodities, they circulate and change shape, respecting no boundary. They can be arranged in hierarchies, then shifted and reprioritized. They know no stability, permanence, or place. And for this reason, Illich says, this new language can no longer incarnate what people once sensed as the good. I must first make it clear that as far as I can understand, I live in a world which has lost the sense for good, the good. The certainty that the world makes sense because things fit together. That the eye is made to grasp the sun, not the sunlight to have an optical effect on that uh, biological camera which still works somehow in my head. The sense that virtuous behavior is fitting, appropriate for the human being. And we have lost it in the course of the 17th and 18th and 19th century with the rise of the concept and the experience of value. Good is absolute. In the sense, either it's the light and the eye are made for each other, and this is deeply experienced, or the eye has value for me because it allows me to orient myself in the world. The moment I speak about, in philosophy, about values, which can, of course, be positive and also negative. I already assume that there is somewhere a zero point from where values rise or decline. It is not the economy which introduces 
commodity like reflections into philosophy, but is the philosophical replacement of the good by value, by the idea of value, which finds also an expression in economics, which then is one of the major forces shaping the milieu within which my life is a pursuit of values and not anymore the pursuit of the good for me, which can be only another person. What else could it be? The language of values, according to Illich, makes it impossible any longer to speak of either good or evil, because both are absolute concepts which cannot be connected to any purely relative scale. And this has profound consequences for Christianity, he says, because it hides the existence of sin. In the tradition of which I speak, sin allows a heightened understanding of evil. Evil is the opposite to good. It's not a disvalue or a negative value. And sin is a mysterious aspect of evil, which I see connected with a personal offense of God. If I'm not wrong, the loss of the philosophy, the certainty about good and evil and its replacement by value and disvalue has destroyed the basis on which the existence of sin was predicated, because sin cannot be connected to negative values. What follows for Illich is that we have lost the only language in which the modern condition can be adequately grasped, because to him sin is the only name that can comprehend the betrayal of Christ's New Testament that this condition represents. And this, to him, is the worst. For not only have we lost the sense for what fits, we have also lost any way of recognizing that it has gone. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy, and tonight's program, by David Cayley, is called The Corruption of Christianity. The feeling for just proportions, for what fit, Ivan Illich has argued, was a physical sense a real perceptual ability that people once had. The world of values, therefore, deprives us not just of the idea of the good, but imposes an actual sensual deprivation. Illich sees an example of this deprivation in the way contemporary people experience their own bodies. Until well into the 18th century, he says, the body was felt to be a microcosm. There was a correspondence between the individual body and nature as a whole. According to a tradition which descended from the Roman physician Galen, the body was thought to be composed of four humors, and health was conceived in terms of the balance of these cosmic elements as they flowed or were blocked within the body. Illich has studied this humoral, microcosmic body by observing the way it conditioned the encounter between physicians and their patients. The doctor, in this old tradition, he says, could do no more than support and foster the body's tendency to return to a balanced state. 
Unlike the contemporary doctor who determines his patient's experience by his diagnosis, these older doctors had to rely on the patient's own report. When I look at doctors, and by now I have five or six good studies which do this, on how they behave when they meet a patient before modern medicine has trained them to a modern self-consciousness, the doctor, they listen to the patient. I am tired of hearing, well, a good modern doctor does it too. Let him do it in seven minutes, seven minutes and a half. He listens to the patient's story. He makes an anamnesis, which is the patient's self-awareness, which is pretty credible because usually it takes the form of complaints. The patient comes with complaint. He comes to cry on the doctor's shoulder. And when I analyze what the patients told the doctor, it is about how they feel. How they feel, I don't have to say in old English, how they feel themselves. What else? If I ask you, how do you feel? Even in modern English, how do you sit in your in yourself. How is it today? How is that who, who you are? First of all, to his own seat and stance, and second, to the world around him. What the doctor treated was what he got through the confession of the patient. You know, my right eye gives out since I saw that man being hanged. It's a very common thing, and I'm blind on my right eye, although sometimes I see. And I think of a very concrete one. Since my landlord, who is a powerful man, threw me out of the house in a most uncivilized way, I have enormous pains because I feel that my juices don't run down my leg left leg anymore. I could go on telling dozens, hundreds of such stories. And the doctor does not only hear what the patient says, but he also immediately qualifies what kind of a character in the humoral, today we would almost say astrological sense. He doesn't have to know any explicit astrology. This is. This sanguine man reports on a blockage of his red flows to the tips of his toes on the left side and then translates this into much more detailed, specific, beautiful Latin language, which we call Galenic medicine, which he has learned in school. So the doctor's task consists is essentially an interpretative one. It's an exegesis of what the patient reveals about himself with the competence to translate this into explicit medical knowledge, which is so clear that it immediately makes him see internally the plants which are related to the same issue. Plants, at least in our Western post-medieval medical manuals, are classified by organs, by human organs. The little man who stands in the middle of the classification miniature relates the organ, the liver, 
to that plant and the stomach to that other plant. And here assemble bouquets of plants and flowers and sometimes even animals, which your doctor immediately thinks of. So the doctor translates the story about the humoral, the flowing experience or stopping experience, the cold and the warm of the flows, the biting nastiness of some, and the sweetness which is overwhelming and takes away his good judgment when he sees that woman's face, into scientific language, his science which relates to possible other cosmic elements which might, and that he must know, help under these circumstances. Two things stand out for Illich in this encounter of doctor and patient. First, that the patient tells a story which locates whatever discomfort he is feeling in the context of his entire experience. And second, that the doctor attends to this experience rather than to some construct which his superior knowledge allows him to impose on it. He relies on the patient's word. All traditional doctors believed in people, their patients, telling them about their nature. Nature was experienced, was felt, was smelled, was tasted by people. And the physician, as if he were participating in a Greek tragedy, through mimesis, sympathy which becomes feeling the other, was trained, like the spectator in the Greek theater, to feel the actor, to feel this tragic instance of an individual sitting in front of him who had been caught in his human condition in some mess, in something contrary, and nature was trying to heal itself. The idea of health didn't exist, but only of nature being more or less capable to constantly heal itself. And what he did as a doctor was through counsel, through sympathy, through the power of the word, the healing word, and perhaps through ground corals or mercury pills, which are highly poisonous, as we would say today, to encourage nature, to reinforce nature, to perform its own healing act. Today we can hardly think that way about what the function of a doctor is. We always think that he uses some tool of his profession to do something to the system of a subsystem in the patients which he knows about, not the patient. What is significant about this change for Illich is the way in which it undermines and brackets the patient's experience of his own flesh. His condition is no longer something that he can feel, but something he has to be told about. In the terms Illich developed earlier, there is no longer a fit. The body has lost its correspondence with other elements in the cosmos and become a set of values which the doctor alone is qualified to read and interpret. If I think of a medical encounter today, it usually has a certain shape, unthinkable until my generation. I call up the doctor and say, Doctor, I feel terribly tired. Well, Mr. Illich, take a pencil. You go to the lab and have 
a blood test of such type and urine test of such type and excrements of such type and when you come here and my assistant will make because you're an old man by now a cardiogram and uh, let's hope he stops there and when I look at that and tell you what's happening with your body and if he's a very well-trained modern doctor he'll say and further I'll give you a few direct and indirect psychological tests what happens with you because you are not a body only you are a psychophysical being from earliest childhood on it is in this way that we are trained or our mothers are trained to think about what we are made of the stuff is which sits there and smiles or sighs. Nothing of this I can find in 800 years of history of the medical encounter. The one thing the doctor wants to know from a patient that he tell him stories. He doesn't have to solicit them because the patient will begin and say, you know doctor, I am so terribly tired. And I knew that this would be coming. Now I'm a 70-year-old man. Once, when I was a boy and walked along that cemetery wall during the night, and that's afterwards for the first time that I felt this. And to say the truth, I'm completely sandy, washed out, dry. I can't connect now when I speak to you uh, with my bowels. It's very difficult. I have to ask to bring me a second or third cup of coffee or something even better than coffee. That is, the doctor, as we suggested yesterday, had to learn to accept that the flesh was summed up in the experience of it, in the experience of materiality, in the experience of stuff, in the stuffiness. The gestalt, the shape of the stuffiness of the guy sitting in front of him, which he, through hearing the story and watching the man's behavior, language, gestures, way of sitting, diet, could grasp. This sense of the body, which is totally that to which the word ego, I, points. That which I make present in a conversation when I say, I say to you, I believe, that body during the last 50 years, in my opinion, has been profoundly obscured. The ability of perceiving it maligned. The arrests of availability of it transformed into symptoms which a doctor, if he's a good specialist, somewhere on the border of psychology, can classify. I have therefore come to the conclusion that I live in a world in which that body to which... Okay, let me stay with my story. The angel, Angel Gabriel, told the girl in a town of Galilee, Nazareth, God wants to take, to be in her belly, is something which is out of the world in which I live. This last point of villages, 
that contemporary persons cannot grasp the meaning of God's incarnation in Jesus because we are no longer ourselves embodied in this older sense is one to which I'll return at the very end of tonight's program. But I want to continue for the moment with the evidence for his argument that modern people have lost the experience of their own bodies. Twenty-five years ago, when Illich wrote his book Medical Nemesis, he used the term iatrogenesis, literally doctor-made, to describe the illnesses that arise from medical treatment, getting the wrong diagnosis, the wrong pill, or the wrong operation. Today, he gives this term a different twist, with his claim that what doctors now mainly give people is their bodies. The medical establishment takes on the task of providing people with bodies. And then these bodies are introjected by alternative medicine. I remember one of the main people in the United States who read about body history who came to see me and my friends, I don't know if you were there, and he said, well, first thing so that we can clearly understand each other, we must now very sweetly, he trumpeted, sit down and I will lead you through an internal visualization. And he wanted me to apply my own eyes as if they were sonar equipment or magnetic resonators. You feel your heart and you feel the right chamber and whatever he connected with the right chamber, with the left chamber. And he believed that he was leading us out of the medical paradigm, that he was leading us ever more into the ayatro, doctor, genetic, made thing with which most people today run around. You can see when you exaggerate. I would like you to meet Doña Lute, a nice village woman whose husband, I think, died and she's earning some money as a maid somewhere in town, but she comes back to the village in the evening to make some extra money. She sells sometimes on advance payment and then picks up the rest of the subscription in the next six or eight weeks. Journals, which help people who hardly can read through comics to acquire iatrogenic bodies, and thereby she disqualifies, represses, veils the sense with which a lot of Mexicans still ran around about themselves. How do you feel? Como se siente? Of 30 years ago, people had something which they felt. And medical science couldn't do anything else but interpret it. The modern medical patient, according to Illich, is taught from childhood on to internalize a body which he cannot sense. He learns to identify himself with measured values, like his blood pressure or his cholesterol level with the mapping of his interior that is made possible by X-rays, magnetic image resonators, ultrasound probes, or CAT scans, and today, increasingly, with the various risks, as of cancer or heart disease, to which he might be genetically predisposed. And in none of this, Illich says, is there anything he can actually feel. In the few moments remaining in tonight's program, I want to return to Illich's main theme in this series, the corruption of Christianity. Earlier, 
Illich argued that traditional societies were defined by their sense of proportion, their sense of how things fit together. He then went on to show that this sense was undone by the doctrine of contingency, the idea of a world entirely dependent on a single divine will, which overbalanced and eventually overturned the system of correspondences which, in the traditional cosmos, held each thing in its proper place. This upsetting of the traditional order, in Illich's view, was a corruption of Christian belief and in no way a necessary or inevitable consequence of it. His example is the text he has used as his touchstone throughout this series, the Gospel parable of the Good Samaritan. The story is told in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is asked, Who is my neighbor? In response, he tells the story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho who was waylaid by robbers, beaten, and left half dead by the road. A priest of the temple chances upon him and passes by on the other side. Another official of the temple does the same. Then comes a Samaritan, an outsider from the northern kingdom of Israel who did not worship in the temple. He takes mercy on the fallen man, binds up his wounds, and takes him to an inn where he pays for his care. This story, as Illich understands it, announces a new and unprecedented freedom. As a foreigner, the Samaritan had no ethical obligation whatsoever to the wounded man beside the road, because ethics in the ancient world applied only within the boundaries that defined a given people in a given place with a given tradition. Jesus announced the Samaritan's freedom to step across this boundary and embrace the wounded man. This certainly transgressed a traditionally sacrosanct frontier and in that way potentially threatened the traditional sense of proportion. But it also, in Illich's view, implied an entirely new kind of proportionality. What is revealed to us in the parable of the Samaritan is this. When we ask him, who is my neighbor? He answered, he to whom you, as a free human being, establish your personal proportionality by turning to him in love and inviting to mutuality of love, which one usually calls friendship. The Samaritan made me understand that I am I, in the deepest and fullest sense which is given to me to be I, precisely because you, by allowing me to love you, give me the possibility to be correlative to you, to be proportionate. I see, therefore, in love, hope, and charity, the crowning of the proportional structure, in the full old sense, the proportional nature of creation. Nothing is what it is except because convenient. It fits, it is in harmony with something else. And I am free to choose with whom, or better, to accept from whom I want, from whom I let myself be given the possibility of loving. The Samaritan, therefore, the call of the Samaritan, charity, agape, does not destroy, but elevates proportionality onto a level which formerly was not perceived. It goes beyond Plato and Aristotle and beyond the Greek mysteries. 
It says your telos, your end purpose, the goal of your being is your choice of charity. The story of the Samaritan, Illich says, elevated proportionality to a new height. He used the same term earlier in relation to the idea of contingency, which, he said, elevated nature to a new, if fragile, dignity as God's continuous creation. And the same, he argues finally, can be said of the Christian view of the body, which is implied in the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. It makes possible the destruction of traditional body images, but it is in itself a glorification of the body. His text is a scene described in the Acts of the Apostles, in which the Apostle Paul preached the resurrection of the body to an assembly of Athenians. Paul gave this speech which seemingly appealed to Athenians, the most civilized people, as I would say. The Agora was, when I'm speaking really as an adoptive New Yorker, something like Washington Square in its best moments. People listened to him with great enthusiasm about Jesus, about his death on the cross, but then he wanted to speak about the resurrection of the dead. And somebody told him, for today it was enough. Come another time and tell us about this. Paul speaks about something which even the Athenians don't want to listen to. Come back another time. They were delicate people, decent people, well-educated people. And yet, the belief in the resurrection of the body, of Christ's ascension, the popular devotion to a body of Mary physically taken into heaven, so common that a modern pope believes that on the basis of the commonness of the devotion, he could say that it is a part of Christian belief, demanded from those who lived in that culture a respect in front of their body as a mystery, which in a way over went beyond, but in a way also destroyed, all the different kinds of old body images or perceptions which were culturally determined differently in different cultures. We have now these marvelous studies by Mrs. Ruth Padel, P-A-D-E-L. Where did they feel their minds? They could handle the Greek heroes, they could take it in their hand. Their liver, their courage could push them on. These body cultures, if you want to say so, have been surprisingly, in our Western culture, replaced or overshadowed, is the best word. They've been overshadowed by the respect for the body, which is Christ's body. And once that disappears, a void space was left into which you couldn't put any construct. The reluctance of Paul's Athenian audience to follow him in his discussion of the resurrection certainly shows their awareness of how potentially destructive such a teaching might prove to their traditional sense of the density of their own flesh. And yet, Illich says, the resurrection also created a new respect for the body, a new sense of the splendor and dignity of flesh that was destined for resurrection. Where corruption enters, is through the very delicacy and fragility of these ideas. The idea of contingency, which asserts God's care at every instant of existence, 
collapses into an assertion of human sovereignty, and the resurrected body of Christ, when it is no longer experienced as comprehending all bodies, leaves what Illich calls a void space, an absence in which no body can be made to fit. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 4 of The Corruption of Christianity, Ivan Illich on Gospel, Church, and Society. The series concludes tomorrow night with Ivan Illich's reflections on the world at the end of the second millennium. Tonight's program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of Ivan Illich in Conversation, published by House of Anansi Press. Technical operations and studio direction were by David Field. Associate producer, Catherine Hughes. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $25 and a set of five audio cassettes for $39.95. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. Or by email to ideas at toronto.cbc.ca. You can also call area code 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. That's 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. And I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers.